0: Hi, this is the Cancer Liberation Project podcast. If you've been touched by cancer and have some fear around remaining healthy, you are in the right place. As a 20-year-plus cancer survivor, Haley knows how unsettling it can be to not only hear the words, you have cancer, but also the uncertainty and fear that comes when you have been declared cancer-free. The Cancer Liberation Project was born out of Haley's desire to make cancer less scary for people, to give people hope, that they can not only heal from cancer, but live their best, most vibrant life after cancer. Get ready to be inspired with your host, Haley Dubin. Hi, everyone. Welcome to the Cancer Liberation Project. Today, I'm sitting down with Donnie Yance. Donnie is an internationally known master herbalist and nutritionist. He received his herbal training through Sequoia College and is a professional member of the American Herbalist Guild. He was trained as a clinical nutritionist through the National Institute of Nutritional Education and holds certification through the National Association of Nutrition Professionals. He is also professed as a secular Franciscan, which equips him with the breadth and wisdom to touch on the spiritual aspects of healing. Donnie has authored two books herbal medicine, healing, and cancer, and adaptogens in medical herbalism, elite herbs and natural compounds for mastering stress, aging, and chronic illness. Donnie developed a comprehensive approach to healing called the Eclectic Triphasic Medical System, or ETMS, now also practiced as Midari Medicine and Midari Care. ETMS consists of a holistic diagnostic and therapeutic methodology rooted in American eclectic herbal tradition, constitutional energetics, and contemporary clinical nutrition, continuously updated and honed with the latest scientific research at the molecular, cellular, and genomic levels. This incredible collection will be available to healthcare professionals soon through the Mederi Academy. He's also the founder and formulator of Natura Health Products, for which he created a unique line of therapeutic-grade botanical and nutritional supplements. I look forward to sharing my conversation with Zani, but before I do, just a reminder to head over to my website at revivewellness.com to get your free seven top tips to keep cancer away and feel confident in your body again. That's r-e-v-i-v-e wellness.com. Hi, Donnie. Welcome to the Cancer Liberation Project. I'm really happy to have you and to have this time with you today. Thank
1: you, Haley. I'm excited as well.
0: And really, I just would love you to start with your story, how you got into the health and wellness field, you know, just a little bit about you.
1: That sounds wonderful. So, you know, it's it's been a part of my life since high school, really. And so I was working in a natural food store when I was 16 years old uh, in Stamford, Connecticut, called Health Mart. And I sort of fell in love with health and healing right then and there. And then I really developed my love for herbal medicine at that point as well, reading this very old book called uh, Back to Eden by Jethro Kloss, which was written in the 1930s. And it's kind of an archaic, what I call book based in what's called Thompsonianism, which is sort of the crudest, oldest system of herbal medicine in our country. But it was my introduction. And what really touched me was the concept that this beautiful pharmacy exists out there in nature that was left for us to use. And so that was the beginning of my love for herbal medicine. And I I love helping people and seeing people get well. At that point, My other interests were music. I'm a musician, um, bass player, jazz musician, composer, and then theology. So I'm a third order Franciscan, and I actually left the field of music and health to live in a Franciscan monastery, Byzantine Rite, so Eastern Rite Franciscan Monastery for almost three years. And then I ran a soup kitchen, and then I went back to my real calling, which I think was health and healing. So I re I managed a couple natural food stores in my 20s, late 20s, and then I decided that I'm going to take this seriously and go to the next step and develop a practice, a clinical practice, both as an herbalist and nutritionist. And I would say that um, music has always paralleled and united with, has been unified with my uh, healing pursuit, and it still is. So it's a big part my life
0: it probably balances your your life because you you know it's pretty hectic right
1: well it's pretty funny that you say that Every, everyone just assumes that it's kind of an outlet but it's really not it's so synchronized with healing and it's so much a part of me so I tell people the more music I do the more music I compose the more music I play the better I get at medicine so I really see um, the components that it takes to be great at music, to be very conducive to how to work with people in a complex whole system model because you are having to basically study your whole life, put everything you know into your brain and into your intellect. But like Einstein says, the intuitive mind is the sacred gift. The rational intellect is the humble servant. And we now live in a world where we honor the servant and we have forgotten the gift. And so music is is so intuitive. It's such a, a, a convergency of the intellect, the mind, the emotions, the spirit, the soul, and how you make great music is to kind of just to let go and be free. And then you can begin to see. And so things unfold, how you work with somebody and how I build a protocol all kind of comes through. All of these elements working together, and that's the way music works too and you're listening there's an antenna kind of inside yourself where you're you're listening to every component of your being while at the same time listening to everything outside. so you're really being attentive to the person you're working with and I can't think of anything else other than you know being a jazz musician that that compares to doing medicine.
0: Oh, I'm so glad you shared that. It is so interesting. Botanicals, why are they so important in the field of oncology?
1: They are the backbone of the whole systems model, the unitive model that I've developed called Madeiri Care. And I always say they're the soul of the medicine. And there is probably no lens that you can apply to be able to ascertain a way in which botanicals help our health. And so what I mean by that is that we can look at a whole herb and putting herb combinations together, and we can think in terms of how those plants and all of those interacting compounds might best serve us in what I call a network concept. So plants are very network. We're, you know, we have coexisted since the beginning of time with botanicals. Every single culture, every culture has used plants to heal. They've used plants to make clothing. They've used plants for food. They've used plants to make incense. You know, there isn't one area that plants have not been part of human evolution. You know, we would co evolved together. And so we have this beautiful relationship. I often tell people without botanicals, without the plant world, we would be we wouldn't have oxygen to breathe. You know, they are they are taking in carbon dioxide and providing the the oxygen that we breathe in they are they are through a process called xenohormesis i know it's a big word but it's not that hard to understand the concept of xenohormesis is that a plant that cannot go and harvest harvest food or water has to learn to thrive in very harsh environments just imagine yourself as a botanical you know you you you're pretty you're stationary And so they have to work and create very sophisticated what we call secondary metabolites. All of these like molecules and small compounds that they develop over time to deal with all the stress they have to have, all the the different forms of stress that are in their environment, whether it be pathogenic stress, whether it be environmental stress, and they can still thrive. You know, plants have been around here a lot longer than than we have. And as they develop these compounds, some of the ones that we know that deliver such great health to us, whether they be the stillbin compound resveratrol, that often comes from the stress of grapes or from the botanical um, polygolum cuspinatum, which is the Japanese knotweed. So these, these compounds are developed in the plant to, as immune agents, to help them. But when we ingest them, we get the same, we get benefit from them. They are protective to us. They strengthen us in both often specific ways, but very non specific ways. So, how I like to see botanicals, the way I see them and the way that I practice, is not so allopathically, like this herb is going to, you're going to take this herb for your, you know, for your heart health or this herb for your reproductive health. I think in terms of, What's called the vitalistic concept that the best way to provide botanicals in a medicinal way is kind of like feeding the root system of a tree that we want to build robustness we want to try to be non-specific and normalizing and improve the ability of our bodies to auto-regulate to improve the ability of our bodies to auto-organize thus the primary botanicals that I start with as the building blocks are typically adaptogens and nerve binds. And so herbs that nourish the nervous system and herbs that strengthen the neuroendocrine system of the body, sort of the, the hubs of the body. You know, in, in energetic medicine, we refer to that as the essence. The essence is the reservoir of our endocrine or hormonal energy. It's not our estrogen, it's not our testosterone, it's not our stress hormones. It's really the reservoir that all of this emanates out of. And then our bodies are controlled because our bodies are trying to do the best it can to not only maintain health, but often find ways to improve health through what's called an adaptive response. And so botanicals mitigate a lot of the, the components of stress, that are ever omnipresent in our lives that we live, whether they be environmental stress, whether they be emotional stress, they are able to mitigate on a multitude of levels. So we can say they mitigate on a epigenetic level, on a molecular level, on a cellular level, and on an organ system level. So we can't, for example, change the genes that we have. We're born with genes, but we can change how they behave. So that's called epigenetics It's the behavior and that plants or botanicals are better than anything at altering gene behavior. So they are able to do it in many ways.
0: Well, I wanted to ask you, it leads me to oncologists because they always say, don't take herbal supplements when you are going through chemo or radiation. And I'm wondering how you get around that. What is your process?
1: Well, first of all, they, they do they, when, when oncologists say that, it's out of ignorance because they, they, the truth of the matter is they don't know. And so a honest and authentic way to respond is says, I don't know anything about botanicals and the treatments I'm giving you. That's the truth. That's what they should be saying. But instead, they say, don't take them because they can negate or negatively impact that. And there is only literature, I I shouldn't say only, but the overwhelming amount of data supports what I call a beautiful positive interaction. So plants are able to potentiate, you know, first of all, 65% of chemotherapeutic agents are plants, you know, or plant mimicking compounds. So to say, you know, don't take plants, like if you're taking for ovarian cancer, for example, you know the, one of the chief herbs are taxines. So whether you're taking taxol, taxotere, abraxane, which is my favorite taxine, th- those are either derivatives uh, from nature. Mostly, the Pacific yew tree is where taxol comes from, but it's also high in food too. Brazil nuts or hazelnuts have taxines in them, and taxol is only one taxine in the Pacific yew of 27 taxines so there's there's all and then that doesn't include all the other compounds in the plant because there's hundreds and thousands of compounds that are interacting but to make a chemotherapeutic agent you have to isolate a compound and then often at some point you synthesize it synthetically that compound is a mimicking compound but taxol itself is a natural compound and what we find is that in nature, if they only use one compound to say deal with a pathogen, you would easily develop resistance to that. You know, you know, bugs are smart, cancer smart. So there's there's a really quick ability of cancer cells to overcome the treatment that they're undergoing. So you may get a response, but frequently that response doesn't last forever. And so to help ensure a good response, a better response, to potentiate that response, to then in turn also reduce the what we call multi-drug resistance that occurs in drug therapy for cancer. Plants are great at that as well. Then plants are also able to mitigate a lot of the adverse cells. So plants are protective to healthy cells while instilling some of the cytotoxic effects of the treatments that people are undergoing. And this is what I've been doing for well over three decades is is bathe people in a multitude of plants along with the drug therapies they have. Now I'll say one thing is that frequently the treatments have negative interactions. So we are seeing a lot of patients that are on a multitude of pharmaceuticals that are contraindicated. And so they should worry more, to me, about their drug-to-drug interaction than their herb-to-drug interaction. I'll give you a few examples. For many, many years, the treatment of choice for breast cancer, for estrogen-positive breast cancer, was tamoxifen. So a lot of women with breast cancer would develop depression, or the tamoxifen would induce some depression, the, the onset of menopausal symptoms and therefore they would prescribe an SSRI as if it was benign. So an SSRI hinders the enzyme pathway 2D6, it's called. It hinders that pathway from metabolizing the tamoxifen into its proactive drug that would make it useful. So all of these years, women are taking a drug and the SSRI is negating the benefits of that drug. And that's known, that's factual. Another example is people are now a big type of drug people are taking is called immunotherapy, what's called checkpoint inhibitors, PDL1 inhibitors. And it's, I think, probably one of the most prescribed, overprescribed, and most dangerous class of drugs are called PPIs, proton pump inhibitors they pass them out like they're nothing, like they're nothing. And they're very, very dangerous, very dangerous. They have many, many long-term consequences of taking those drugs. And those drugs, along with antibiotics, which are given to cancer patients, along with steroids, so PPIs, antibiotics, steroids, all diminish the benefit of immunotherapy, and that's all in the literature. It's very clear. Yet nobody pays attention to it. No. They'd rather tell people not to take any herbs. And again, you know, there's situations you don't you don't you got to know what you're doing. You know, you don't just it's not a free for all. You know, anything can be abused, you know. And so I love to quote Ben Franklin when it comes to everything in my life, a place for everything, everything in its place, even, you know, and that's that's I live by that motto. So it's like everything has a U-curve you know too much of something too little of something has equal consequences even the most toxic thing in the smallest amount can be healthy for you
0: now do you work with oncologists you know showing them okay this is the literature this is
1: yeah it's a great question so i often say you know there are different layers of oncologists there are ones that that will be angry but i i you know i have the largest database of information on, I think oncology, particularly on natural medicine oncology of anyone in the world. I mean, I, I, would, I would put what I have. So it's very easy for me. I'm doing a blog this week on turmeric and chemotherapy and the interaction of turmeric and chemotherapy. So it's very easy for me to compile data and provide that data as a way to, to give insight into the validity of what I'm recommending. So that's, that's what I do. I compile data and I provide it then I often ask for if the oncologist says something that I don't disagree with, I ask them to provide literature to back it up. And again, most of the time it's theoretical, it's not factual. So they'll say, well, your drug, your herb is impacts the CYP3A4 pathway. I saw it on this website, the Sloan Kettering website, it says it's going to upregulate that pathway and that, that cancer drug is metabolized through that pathway. So therefore you can't take it because you might eliminate more of the drug than we should. And that's a theory, but in, and in, in again, it should be tested but there's nowhere where it's tested where we see a diminished effect of the chemotherapy. So ultimately you only see the chemotherapy working better with the herb and working longer with the herb and having less adverse effects. And so even the classic example of St. John's wort, which is the big no, no, never take St. John's wort with, you know, even then in St. John's wort is a potent 3A4 inducer and a 2D6 inducer. So basically what it means is that it wants to detoxify you. <laughs> it's, it's, so it's it's, you know, plants wanna help you get rid of toxins. So it's possible that you can bring your blood levels down with taking high, high dosages of certain herbs. So there should be some caution at times, you know, a little bit of caution. But again, that doesn't mean that you can't take some and it can have a positive effect and not have a negative effect at all. So the bottom line is that just because an herb might increase the elimination of a drug that doesn't mean its anti-tumor effects has been compromised. So in animal studies with St. John's wort, where the blood levels came down, you know, 30% with St. John's wort, so all of a sudden, like iria Tcan, which is the drug they tested, blood levels are less in the blood, you would think in terms, well, that might mean, and it might actually mean that the drug is going to be less effective. However, it didn't mean that. In the animal studies we saw a drop in blood count we saw the drug being eliminated quicker but we didn't see it diminish the anti-tumor effects so the tumors that so when the St. John's wort was given with there it the, the tumors weren't larger than they otherwise were without the St. John's wort so even in the case where a drug might be eliminated at a, at a pretty high level And this is, again, in an abusive way, you know, you're taking very, you know, very high dosages of a single herb, which is kind of not what I do. So what we need to do is be willing to do a lot more research in this area, because all the literature is suggestive. my practice, you know, it suggests that giving people a protocol such as I do, which is based on host diagnosis, which is based on microenvironment diagnosis and is based on tumor diagnosis. And the most important thing is building robustness in the patient. So that's, that's the most important thing, is not doing things that have a big impact on their cancer, say, that's, that's topical treatment. You know, that's, what I, that's the final thing that I might be thinking about. Where I'm concentrating on is how to create superhumans that are people with cancer. That's the first point. I want to make somebody as healthy, as strong as an ox in light of the fact that they have cancer and they're going to be undergoing toxic therapy. And I'll do that by using tonic herbs and adaptogens, by normalizing, by nourishing their body, then by analyzing uh, a numerous laboratory tests to make sure everything in a blood test is conducive to health optimization. So we want to create and we want to alter that microenvironment in a way that suits the optimal state of health for the host. Then we want to analyze it because cancer cannot make tumors until it hijacks that environment. So it has to take control. And so we can then interfere with some of those components that we are able to ascertain through laboratory tests, whether it be things that have to do with, say, immune manipulation, because cancer is going to use your own immune system, or whether it be the, what's called the rheology of your blood. So cancer is going to want to create stagnation, and it's going to want to create the, a prothrombotic state. So in other words, more clot forming, more sticky platelets. Um, that's why cancer patients are at much higher risk for having blood clots. And so we can do some analysis on the blood that sees what people are going to be the most prone to forming clots and intervene and do things that are potentially inhibitory to that, while at the same time, by inhibiting those pathways, we're also taking away something the cancer is trying to utilize to grow. So when we start doing all of these little things, normalizing people's vitamin D's, looking at pH levels, um, looking at copper, zinc, and ceruloplasm balance, you know, all these things play a role and in and of themselves, by themselves, they won't make a significant difference.
0: You just said ceruma something balance. What
1: was that? Ceruloplasm. So ceruloplasm is a biomarker in the blood that denotes one of two things. In a highly inflammatory state, it can be elevated because it's an acute phase response protein. So it's going to be high if someone's very inflammatory. But if they're not, it's high because copper is high in the tissue. So if you can think of iron levels, looking at somebody's iron level in their blood and then looking at their ferritin. So the ferritin measures the tissue saturation of iron the iron level is giving us the blood level. When we're looking at uh, another example might be estrogen. Estradiol is the blood level of estrogen. Estrone sulfate is a deeper look in the tissue.
0: Okay, got it. Yeah. So do you do those tests as well? Not just the estrogen blood test, but the tissue?
1: Yes, we do. We do a host analysis, which is very subjective and comes through developing relationship, looking at symptom presentation, uh, developing a relationship. and then we do a blood analysis, looking at the microenvironment. and then we're often recommending and conversing with the oncologist, the cooperative con- oncologist that is, because sometimes, like I said, they're resistive. Sometimes they're cooperative sometimes they're partially cooperative and sometimes they're fully on board and they really love, you know, eventually when they see my only interest is is helping people get well. That's all I care about. And so if I approach them with that attitude and I say I know doctor, you're that's your interest as well. I think if we work together, we're going to get better outcome and the patient's going to be very happy. So I for me it would be wonderful if we can do some in-depth molecular profiling on this tumor, either through the pathology or through what's called a liquid biopsy, and get a few more clues. So think of Sherlock Holmes. So our investigative corner, as we call it, is called Sherlock's Corner. So we name our looking at all our clues through microscopes, through telescopes, uh, based on a Sherlock Holmes investigation. So we're looking at, at all these molecular th- pathways, and then we're looking at very subjective, you know, how's my patient sleeping? You know, what's their tongue look like? How's their digestion? How's their relationships? Um, what's their stress level? What's their energetic nature? Are they excess heat or excess or too much dampness? And so that is that subjective constitutional, you know, traditional lens. But then we apply what I call the modern lens. We're looking at all of these, you know, next generation sequencing, looking at at you know the gene expressions, the variants or the mutations that might be driving the cancer. And the reason why is always for solutions. Because if we can identify a mutation or a variant, it either can help steer me to some of the tools that I might have, which are botanical, which are more less specific, but still can be useful. But it might also suggest a conversation with the oncologist around a potential drug treatment for the patient. So if there's a mutation, say, in what's called the PIC3 pathway, now we can look at drugs that reduce mTOR signaling or potentially target PIC3, but those drugs are more toxic. So in some cases, say again, a breast cancer case where you where it's an estrogen positive breast cancer, what factors contribute to when somebody responds and stays in remission with the treatment that apparently has the same profile, and then a second patient has a reoccurrence in three or four years, and a third patient has a reoccurrence in six to twelve months? what separates those three patients they all present with erpr positive breast cancer so we can analyze and maybe even foresee that higher risk patient and see certain things that stand out and then maybe target those things so that everybody has great outcome not just a few things i mean you can have your occasional great miracle case but what how are we going to look at everyone that we have to work with and assure to the best of our ability that we're doing everything we can to assure the best outcome, which is always helping people live longer and living better. It's not always eradicating disease. It's like our goal is to help people live longer and help people live better. And so I've learned a long time ago that I can do everything right with botanical medicine, nutritional medicine, but if a patient's doing drugs very strong, Toxic drugs that are not working—they're still not going to get well. So the beauty—that's why we call the beauty—is in, in and we call unitive medicine, making sure everything is working in a way that assures best outcome.
0: And you're looking at the whole person, which is so important, like you said. And I'm not dissing on oncologists, but they look at getting rid of the disease, getting rid of the tumor, and you're looking at bringing health to the patient so that they can mm-hmm. get rid of the cancer. I don't want to say on their own, you know, it takes all these things, but so they could be as healthy as they can.
1: Yeah. I, I, one of the issues that, you know, you know, the reason why I've developed a whole a whole systems model is that, you know, we need, you can't just say what you're doing in the system we see is wrong unless you have something better to replace it. So that's what I, I'm trying to say. I said, I have something that I think works better than what we have, and let's give it a chance and see if that's true. You can't just criticize and criticize and criticize and not have a better way, and that way has to work, and you have to be able to execute it in a setting. So that's that's what I'm working towards, because the oncologist, you know, even the best of person that's an oncologist, is working in a very strict, what I would say, you know, what, what's called standard of care. So they're very limited of what they can do. You know, you, you come to an oncologist with a cancer, they put in information into a computer, the algorithms give them the diagnosis, you know, this kind of cancer, this staging, and then they are given the treatment that the patient gets, the dosage, the treatment, how to do all that. They have very little personal investment into what is best for the patient because it's all provided for them because they want things to be very standard they want to make sure if you go to five institutions around the country you're going to pretty much get the same treatment even if you go to the biggest most prestigious institution matter of fact sometimes it's the small little places that the oncologists have the most wiggle worm to work a little bit outside of the system because the big institutions also limit the oncologists from doing a lot of their own, you know, evaluation and, and nuance to the, the treatment plan. So we have a system where, you know, it's really hard to change the way they do things, even if everything we can see shows there's a better way. And eventually they get there, you know, like for example, you know, 20 years ago when they first started to use Herceptin for breast cancer, they wouldn't use it until stage four setting. Even if somebody stage one had three plus HER2 new on their pathology, they would still give them standard of care year, 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 year until eventually they say, well, we see that it works in stage four. Why don't we start trying it, you know, early stage, but it takes them almost a decade, almost 10 years to get there. So the system is so slow to change and methodical because you know because they like keeping things simple you know if we add too many things for the, to be ascertained and too much personalization you know though all these institutions use this big word we do personalized medicine they don't do it right. they use the word they use the word we do integrative medicine yeah come to our institution and when we're finished with you, we'll send you down hall and you can have some acupuncture. And that's basically what they, they, they refer to as integrative medicine. And so, you know, they're using these words as lip service to attract patients to their institution, but in the end, they're, they're not really doing it. Now, when people get into a later stage and they fail three, four, five lines of therapy, then they are no longer looking for cure and it's, they're into pal, a palliative setting then they can improvise a little bit more and 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 look at things and are more willing to converse even you know with me at that point. And so actually most of my favorite oncologists are clinical trials oncologists because we're working with patients that are going into clinical trials and then we can speak the same language and often through various testing we can find a good fit for that patient possibly. And it's it's been miraculous in many cases working with some great clinical trial doctors. So, every day is a new day, every every, you know, week or month I'm 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 kind of developing a relationship with another new oncologist. I mean, I have I have oncologist friends all over the world. I've lectured at Bellinson Hospital in Israel for a week teaching unified oncology there at the hospital, you know, 10 hours a week saw seven patients with like up to 30 practitioners in the room with me. So, you know, it's one step at a time. I think us in our Armadiri our Center this year, we're launching our academy. So that opens up in September. It's a two-year school to teach this approach. And then we're going to be on to, do, to exploring as many clinical trials as we can.
0: Amazing. So you're teaching this to who? To oncologists or...
1: Just healthcare professionals. So it's any healthcare professional that's in it that's in a clinical practice that can be an oncologist, a medical doctor, a cardiologist, a nurse, a nurse practitioner, a herbalist, a nutritionist, a naturopathic doctor is a perfect fit, a chiropractor. So anyone that is in a setting that would benefit from learning a very whole systems model that utilizes six toolboxes botanical medicine nutritional medicine which is supplemental dietary medicine lifestyle medicine pharmaceutical and modern medicine and the sixth toolbox is love and spirituality and spiritual care so that's sort of the the essence of how everything works. And so it's always trying to empty out ego and fear and work from a place of courage and love. And that has to be present to be effective.
0: Wow. Can a health coach go? (laughs) Cancer recovery coach?
1: Well, it depends. I mean, what we're doing is that our first level course, we're broadening what people can take it. And then if you get through course one, which are fundamentals and it's not overwhelming and our team thinks that it would be good for you and good for us uh, and good for humanity, then I think we can move forward. I mean, there is this fine line and we're not sure about uh, we're trying to be open minded to what I call some fringe kind of practitioners because because originally, the funny thing is originally, they built this strict criteria. And I said, you know, guys, or, you know, team, I said, under your strict criterion, I couldn't even take my own course. (laughs) (laughs) Right. And you're an expert. Yeah. So I am a little bit of an oddball, I'll admit it, you know. (laughs) But you know, you can't, you can't get to where I've gotten this way and be what I call you know, be part of the the good boys club. You know, you got you got to been you have to have been working a little bit peripherally and outside the system to be able to get as far as I've gotten. But I like working. You know, I'm an outsider that likes to work inside. I, I'm not. I I don't do alternative medicine. I don't do anything like that. I really I really feel the the best outcome comes when I can work together with an open minded oncologist, and we. Forge ahead together in a you know our our motto our Madeira motto is together we heal so that's that's how I that's how I think and then I'm always telling my patients and I tell myself I said my job is every day to do the best I can I said I'm gonna exhaust myself I've gotten to where I am because I'm so driven to to get people well I want to learn every single day so I know when I go to bed at night and I'm saying my prayers I can ask myself did I do my absolute best. And then I said, all you have to do is say the same thing to yourself. You never have to worry outside of anything else. I said, if you just do your best, there's no sense to fear or worry. And if we can find a doctor, an oncologist that thinks the same way, it's limitless of what's possible.
0: Uh, it's exciting. It's exciting to think about, you know, a future that can really heal cancer.
1: Mm-hmm. Yeah. And, and healing's different. I mean, a lot of I don't. I don't like to use words like I think if somebody eventually passes away, whether it's from their cancer or something else, because a lot of a lot of times that happens, people outlive their cancer and die with it, but they don't die of it. But that's not failure to me, you know, fail, fail. You know, we, we have to stop thinking as death as something as failure. It's part of life. You know, birth and death are just part of life, you know, and we don't need to get too concerned with that to the standpoint that you know people use this word survivor and i said if you have you know if you're a person of faith you know which i am then you've already survived you know so it's like we're not you know i said i don't want patients that are looking at what we're doing as survival tactics i want people that have a love and a pursuit of life and i said this is about living not surviving you know living and thriving perfect in every moment Every moment matters
0: yeah i couldn't agree more. I did a video it's interesting you said that just about that about you know the fighting you know fight for a cure we're battling cancer, just all that stuff because yeah, just like you said it's it's not a failure mm-hmm. to pass away from cancer i mean i've had friends that have passed away and such a love for life and just had such a big effect on me. And Mm -hmm. no, they lived life with passion and they're, they're not failures because they died from cancer. So yeah, that makes me crazy too. Now I wanted to ask you real quick. I heard you say that botanicals are really good at targeting stem cells. And, you know, I know a lot of cancer survivors who are breast cancer, for example, who had a recurrence years and years later. And you often hear it's because the chemo doesn't get rid of the stem cells. So can you just talk a little bit about that and how botanicals help with targeting stem cells?
1: Yes, I I have a 200 slide presentation on targeting cancer stem cells. And you're right, chemo does not target stem cells in the typical way that we look at pathology isn't able to ascertain whether one has stem cells or not. There is now molecular testing that there are biomarkers that you can see and patterns you can see that denote that there is a stem cell population. And when people do what's called circulating tumor cells, often they're able to see that. So the stem cells are kind of what's under the carpet, you know, or what's under the soil. You know, you can't see them and they're deeply rooted and chemotherapy not only doesn't get rid of them for the most part I mean there might be exceptions I don't want to I don't want to say things in absolutes targeted therapy and immunotherapy does by the way have a better chance at getting rid of stem cells so it's not just botanicals but the thought that chemotherapy can also agitate stem cells and what I mean by that is that, the stem cells aren't dying from the chemotherapy, but they're sort of hidden in the bone marrow. They're in there. They're in a they're in a quintessential kind of like a a quiet set, a quiet state. They're silenced at the time being, and they're there. And what they're able to do is they're able to take notice of this warfare that's going on with the chemotherapy, and they are capable of differentiating themselves and. When they come out and resurface, they're able to give themselves some new characteristics that make them more resilient to chemotherapy and often more aggressive. So it's important to know if you're going to do a treatment for your cancer, that if it has stem cells, this is where botanicals again can be of great benefit. And it's humble because you can't always denote benefit. I call chemotherapy and and radiation and surgery, I call them uh, glamorous medicine. You know, they're like, you can see, oh my God, look at my tumor shrink. I call what botanical medicine does is humble medicine because it's so, it does what it does so unnoticed. And it, and it does it in ways we don't even know. Like it, it, it can target stem cells. You know, the, old, the, the best way to reduce a stem cell uh, population, a cancer stem cell population, is by. In my opinion, by utilizing the botanical toolbox, and there again is a tremendous amount of research that has demonstrated this in the past, you know, ten years, say, uh, the ability of botanicals to target and eliminate cancer stem cells, and so this is another reason why utilizing botanical medicine uh, in partnership with conventional medicine, I believe, is a really good thing to be considered.
0: How do you know if you have these stem cells?
1: You have to do it through what's called a liquid biopsy. So, or in the pathology, if you do a more in-depth pathology, there'll be various biomarkers. There are numerous things that we can be looking for, and it it gets very technical, so I probably, I don't wanna go too deep into those those biomarkers, but there are some drugs, like I mentioned, her to new breast cancer, turns out that Herceptin is able to extinguish cancer stem cells, not just the cells that we see. So there are some drug therapies, drugs like GLEVAC, which is used for CML, So um, chronic myelocytic leukemia is treated with the first drug that was approved for that cancer is called Gleevec. And that drug now we know if somebody has eliminated their CML down to undetectable for two, three, four, five years, they often can go off that drug and their leukemia never comes back because eventually those stem cells surrender and they give up and then you can actually be cured of your cancer. So there are some of these newer drugs that are uh, beneficial at targeting cancer stem cells.
0: So before we get into random round, I just wanted to ask you one last question. What do you think, and it might be hard just one thing, but what do you think is the most important thing someone can do when they're diagnosed with cancer?
1: Not panic and not do things in a reactionary way i'd say nine out of ten cases you can take your time everybody likes to be pressured and everybody gets this cancer diagnosis and there's this heightened state of anxiety and worry and then everything all of a sudden gets rushed and there's this 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 whole thing that happens and often people make mistakes because they they are doing things out of fear and moving too quickly so like i said take your time take a breath investigate look at your clues look at your options start putting pieces together that make the most sense like for example I'm a big proponent often of what's called neoadjuvant therapy so that means that before you jump on doing surgery I am a fan of doing systemic therapy first even if it's you know doing chemotherapy I think that that doing something systemically first, is able to target cancer in a systemic way because cancer is systemic. Doing therapy before surgery should shrink your tumor. If it does shrink your tumor, you know your therapy is effective because you're seeing it with your own eyes shrink your cancer. And the third benefit is that if your tumor shrinks, your surgery is less invasive. So there's a triple benefit from doing it that way, as opposed to getting, say, a breast tumor and right away having a a lumpectomy or a mastectomy or a double mastectomy. It turns out that double mastectomies for long-term outcome are short in lifespan. And the reason why is it delays systemic therapy. So you never want to do things that delay systemic therapy, unless there's a tumor pressing on something and it's an emergency. So I said, 10% 10% of the time, you got to, you know, you got to go like this, you know, you got it, you know, you can't, there's no time to do what I'd like to do, because it, it's either too rapid a growing of a cancer, or it's in a location that's life threatening, and you've got to move quickly. But many cancers are slow and methodical. And um, particularly in older people, you often can just take your time, whether, whether it be a slow growing prostate cancer, for example, or a slow growing leukemia you know, there's a whole concept called slow go, no go, go go-go. So go-go means do strong therapy. Your cancer is strong. You need to do strong therapy. So some patients say, you know, I don't want to do chemotherapy, Don. I said, let us assess your situation because, and I say, you have a very aggressive, strong, highly proliferative cancer. You need strong medicine. You just need it. And then you have more of an intermediate cancer where, yes, you need some some medicine you might you need even chemotherapy but let's see with your age and the state of your cancer i believe you would do better on a typically a lower dose than what might be the bomb therapy or the war therapy and there's a concept called metronomic chemotherapy which i'm a big fan of which just means low dose chemo which can eradicate some cancer cells can act to suppress what's called angiogenesis, growth factors that lead to tumor growth, and can be immune modulating in that lower dose form. And then there's no go, where potentially the treatment in the end can be more harmful than the benefits. So there's a risk to benefit assessment that that you want to do. And you'd never know what's right until you do your full assessment. So you can't think that chemo bad. You know, we'll have a lot of patients says, oh, my sister did chemo, and she died. And my aunt did chemo and she died and you know I I'm, I'm definitely afraid of chemo and I said don't worry you know you know we will make sure that what what you do is really the best thing for you and we will make sure that we we mitigate its effects you'll be strong and it won't be like you you're not alone you know so we'll take you through it or you're right and sometimes the chemo they want to do may not be the best and like, you know, is approved for location of tumor, not the characteristics of that tumor. So I'm waiting for the day when cancer is treated solely best on the characteristics, not on the location. For example, ovarian cancer, you can get carboplatinum, taxol. If you fail that, you're moving on to doxol or topotecan typically. That's pretty much the line of chemotherapy. If you have, say, certain mutations like BRCA mutations, then now they'll add a PARP inhibitor, and then they may add a drug called Avastin. And that's pretty much the toolbox, you know, for ovarian cancer. Um, in breast cancer, in T is what's called a topo-1 inhibitor, which targets a very specific part of the Upregulation of the cancer cell, so it's a very specific agent, and it, and if your cancer is highly expressing that topo one, it can be very effective. If it's not expressing it, it's only toxic and not very effective. In breast cancer, there is no topo one targeting drug, so topo tecan or ireatecan are not approved for breast cancer. So if you have breast cancer with a high topo one, you're out of luck. You know you can't get that unless. Now you're HER2-new positive because there's a new drug called inher 2 that actually targets Topo-1. And again, I'm getting kind of into the weeds and technical, but I'm just giving examples of where I'm hoping that the way that, that these tools are used is not in the best interest of the patient. I'm not against chemo. I'm not against anything. I just think that we could do better at treating patients than we're doing, and I'm hoping that I can be part of that change.
0: Well, it definitely seems like you are doing that. So I so appreciate your time and I know it's gonna help so many people. Uh, ready for Random Round? I'm ready. <laughs> Fill in the blank, freedom to you is?
1: I always feel free, first of all. I, I, not, nothing limits uh, my own heart. I mean, you can be locked in a prison and feel free. You know, so that's freedom is something, nobody can take freedom away
0: the last show you binged and loved?
1: I don't think I've ever actually binged on a show. I, I, I do like a few shows, but I limit myself to, you know, watching, you know, 20 minutes, 40 minutes of something. And so I would say the show I probably came closest to binging on, it was a series called Bosch. And uh, I liked that a lot. It's, you know, cr- murder and crime investigation, a homicide. And I loved the, the in-depth, character building that the show did. And I loved the character, Bosch. And then I'm being a jazz musician. He was a lover of jazz. And so there's always jazz in the background. And his dog was named Coltrane. My son is named Coltrane. So I would say that that. And I loved a show called Great News as more of a sitcom comedy. That was Tina Fey. And then one that's kind of like, like a little bit has some lightness and some good outcome, but was exciting was Burn Notice. So I'd say, those would be my three favorite shows that I've watched in the past, you know, two or three years.
0: When you're feeling afraid, what do you do?
1: You know that I'm a pretty fearless person, so that's that's a tough one. If I'm feeling afraid,
0: I had a feeling you were.
1: <laughs> <laughs> I, I I I can't think of too many things that would put a lot of fear in me, but I, I would say I would pray.
0: If you could have a one-hour discussion with someone past or present. Who would it be and why?
1: Hmm. Wow, there'd be a lot of people, but I'll, I'd have to pick St. Francis of Assisi. And that's because Francis, I'm Franciscan, first of all, and I'm Franciscan because of the person he was. I was brought up uh, Roman Catholic. And yet, you know, at some point in high school, questioned my faith, questioned all all religions and said this, is, you know, they're all like fake. You either got to take your faith seriously or don't pretend at it. And so I was exploring a lot of Eastern religions, Buddhism, and, and very attractive to Eastern ways of thinking and Eastern medicine, but I was still missing something, and it was sort of St. Francis' life that I said, wow, you know, he figured out how to be this amazing human being under the most corrupt time of the Catholic Church and didn't have to make his own religion. So I kind of would say I'd want to I'd hang out with Francis. <laughs> That's
0: great. What is your favorite go-to snack?
1: I would say cashews. <laughs> I love cashews. I, I, love, I love fruit and I love olives. I love Parmesan cheese. But if you said one, it would be cashews.
0: What's one simple thing that brings you joy?
1: Watching people get well. Um, that's probably it just, just intimacy. I love, I mean, I love to work with cancer patients because it creates great intimacy. And I love being close to, to things, being close to nature. I I love really meaningfulness in life and purposefulness in life and, and not just chatter that's unmeaningful. And, and so working with people with cancer just brings me such joy because people, I, we go so deep on so many levels that I love it. Yeah,
0: I could see that what's on your nightstand?
1: An altar. So I have an altar. I have this, uh, I mean, I have a lot of things on my altar, but I'll, I'll say my most precious thing because I got it the first day I was in the monastery. It's this statue of Mary, what we call in the east the Theotokos. And when I first walked in the monastery, Father Anthony gave me a tour of the cloistered. And then he said, well, you know, how would you like Brother X's room? So Brother X was a brother in the monastery that passed away, and he opened the door of Brother X's room, and there's nothing in there. There's just a, an empty bed, a nightstand with this broken statue that was glued together a few times, and he goes, well, would you like Brother X's statue? And I said, most certainly. That's the only thing the guy had to his name, yeah. <laughs> you know? and it has these cracks in it, so that statue is sit next on my nightstand ever since then, no matter where I've been in my life, so...
0: <laughs> What's your favorite form of exercise?
1: For sure, my favorite sport and favorite exercise, although since COVID, I've really not done it, is basketball. I'm a basketball junkie. I love basketball. I love to watch it and I love to play it. But I'm pretty diverse. You know, I I'll do mountain bike riding occasionally, I'll swim. I'll do a little bit of everything. You know, I'm, I'm pretty diverse. I'm a big believer in diversity and exercise. But I would say for sure my favorite sport is basketball. It beats me to, to the pulp when I do it, but it's, it's my favorite.
0: The All-Star Games in Cleveland this year. So that's exciting.
1: That's right. Are you going to go?
0: You should come. <laughs> <laughs> no, I'm, unfortunately, I'm not.
1: The town will be hopping, though. It sure will. You have a great basketball team this year. Yes. They're the biggest surprise of the NBA.
0: What is one thing you're really grateful for in your life right now?
1: I think my health. I was thinking this yesterday that that I I probably am healthier than I ever was in my my life. I I, I know that at some point, you know, I'm, I'm I'll be 63 in June. And I think at some point you kind of feel a downward trend. But I still feel like I'm going up. I mean, I'm I'm the best musician I've ever been. I put out my an album, all of my own music. You know, I'm just so creative with the building of the academy. Uh, I have great energy right now and I feel very blessed. Uh, and so I would just say my great health because I push myself like like nobody else. And so I'm a great sleeper. I eat really well. I don't stress over things, but I'm just thankful that I have such good health to to do what I I'm able to do.
0: Beautiful. Now, where can people find you if they want more information?
1: Well, first I would say my blog is a great resource. That's my one outreach to the to the world and that's donnieyance.com, d o n n i e y a n c e.com. That is a great place and then my center and my foundation is madeeri M-E-D-E-R-I. The word madeeri means To Heal and Be Whole. It's a Latin word. And then my product line is called Natura, N-A-T-U-R-A, which is the Latin word for nature, Natura Health Products. And then my CD is called Heaven Awaits. And so on Spotify or any of those things, you can listen. I'm a bass player, and it's very, you know, what I would say, it's got jazz elements. It's got Funky elements and it's spiritual music as well. So the CD is entitled "Heaven Awaits," and the title track is actually this song called "Heaven Awaits," which is sort of my dedication song to all the patients I've worked with that have passed on. Aww. Because I feel like, I feel like it's a conversion of, and to me, life here is about a reflection of heaven. And then when you can think of heaven, you think of everything beautiful about life here. And then you try to merge heaven and earth. And that's that's what I think of things. And so the song is is got that quality to it as well.
0: Well, thank you so much, Donnie. It was such a pleasure. And I could see that you are helping so many and that you are living your purpose. So it is so wonderful to see. And I hope we can stay in touch.
1: Thank you so much for having me, Hayley. Really nice to meet you.
0: That's it for today's episode. Thank you so much for tuning in. If you enjoyed this podcast, please rate, review, and subscribe. Doing so will really help this podcast get noticed and will help us to inspire more people. And remember, the sky is the limit when you take your power back when it comes to your health.